0: Mapping the knowledge graph? What's that all about? Well, it's about anticipating that people will be looking for information on the subject matter that you're an expert in. If you produce content that anticipates those questions, over time all those potential questions that your tribe has will lead to the answers that you've already provided.
1: You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. We're joined by our marketing maestro, the man with the big brain, Stephen Barnes. That's a good intro on Friday. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Can't complain about that. Big
1: brains, um, <laughs> big
0: muscles, big hearts. Big, big bank
1: balance, big bank balance. Well, well, well trying, but I'm
0: not about. <laughs> that's not not about the money, it's about the art.
1: <laughs> yes, said 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 nobody ever. Um so <laughs>
0: I'd like to talk about mapping the knowledge graph.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Okay, so at this point, uh, Mr. Black is supposed to say, well sir, knowledge graph?
1: Okay, so what do you mean by mapping the knowledge graph?
0: Okay, so mapping the knowledge graph essentially Speaks to this idea that uh, whether it's today, whether it's five years from now, or it's ten years from now, or twenty years from now, um, when somebody's looking for information or the path to a solution to a problem that they might have, they will begin their search in the big Google box. I mean, there are other search engines as well, but for all practical purposes, let's just assume it's the Google box. Um, so the so. When you map the knowledge graph, what you're doing is you're anticipating that people are going to start looking for information on the subject matter that you're an expert in. And then if you produce content on the web that anticipates the kind of questions that people are going to be asking Mm -hmm. uh, and then deliver the answers through your content proposition so that when those questions do get asked, um, you're going to be the party that comes up with the answer to the question. Hmm. Then if you can understand the totality of your niche, if you can um, put together a conceptual framework of the vernacular of the niche and all of the ideas in the niche and all the concepts in the niche and then categorize all of the concepts and then tag all the um, uh, other aspects of the niche that don't represent. Categorization of the material, but just or uh, a, a, a descriptive appendage to um, material that uh, has sort of you know um, uh, universality or connections in common with other concepts within the niche. That's what tags are all about. So if you if you're able to define your taxonomy, writing it down understanding the categorization and understanding the tags that, are, that, that that prevail when you've articulated that niche from a vernacular uh, perspective, then you will be able to anticipate the kind of questions that people will ask. Mm. So if they then ask if you anticipate what those questions are, you can then construct answers using content and then you publish those questions and those answers using a technology platform like WordPress. That allows you to define the taxonomy and allows you to ascribe categories and tags to that vernacular and then you publish and if you publish over time what happens is that all the potential questions and all the potential answers that anybody could ever you know ask or seek answers ask or, or seek uh, in relation to the problems that they have or the solutions that they're looking for, then there's a very good prospect that when those searches occur, you will be right up there, you know, uh, at the top of the tree. Because Google's mission is to provide the highest quality content and the best possible answers to all the queries that people ever make okay. on their platform. So you can define your niche um, and use your expertise. And identify the uh, the questions that could possibly be asked and then produce answers to them in a content format and, and at the same time when you're delivering the answers you do it in a sort of a remarkable purple cow way as we've discussed previously then you can go on over time to map the knowledge graph so that in essence in the future anybody ever asks a, a question in your niche via the, the Google box yeah you're going to appear and that way you dominate search
1: okay. so well.
0: this is what this is the, this is a, this is a dimension to the connection economy that, that people don't readily understand they get their they get their heads stuck in this concept of seo and then you know have imagined so they imagine people with propellers in their heads doing all kinds of weird and, weird and wonderful things in the back end using code and and sort of ways to game an algorithm and you know complex mathematical sort of notions like that but actually that's not what that's not what's going on there's there's a role for technical seo um but but that's not what's going on in my niche and other expert niches, where you're really providing professional service,
1: what okay. you're
0: doing is you're anticipating the, the total vernacular, and then you're answering questions in that
1: vernacular. All right, let's because I don't have the benefit of a formal education, as we've always said. Um, let, let's see if we can we can do this by example. For example, say you had a travel business, and your niche was overseas guests. Uh, coming and making use of your travel service to go and visit game lodges or anything in Southern Africa, for example. How would you yeah. then develop a content proposition around that and then map the knowledge okay. graph?
0: So then what I, what I do first is I say to myself, what are the top 100 questions that anybody could ever ask about this material that you're going you're gonna to start preparing so that you can... Um, uh, yourself en route to Mm. being first found by google Mm. so what are the top 100 questions so through the exercise of writing those top 100 questions and producing answers for it you then essentially lay out the sort of basic parameters of that niche mm. and then you identify all of the other related information that would naturally flow from those top 100 questions that somebody might potentially go oh yeah i've got the answer to that question okay but that stimulates another question mm. right and so you then understand what that other question is and you get to a point where once you have kind of like you know, asked all of those questions and thought about it in that frame of reference. For all practical purposes, you've defined the outside edges of your niche. And and at that point, you can then focus your entire content proposition around A, answering questions, um be helping to solve problems see surfacing information and then and then basically putting down everything else that you think is probably going to add value uh in relation to uh, that particular niche understanding the kind of things that people are interested in so it's been driven by this sort of the top 100 questions and then organically you spoil it out of that and then impacting on that of course will be all of your um all of your knowledge of that niche, because you're obviously in that business, game you know, game parks in South Africa. So there could be a gazillion other things that you might want to you know write about and to, to make uh, you know interesting. And it could be you know security and safety on the uh, on safari. Mm. Um, you know what was the history of uh, uh, let's say um, no longer killing these animals but taking photographs of them. You know just the kind of stuff that that is, is naturally you know, within your um, within your purview mm. um, that, that you. you can then build a sort of content platform around so that in the future, over five, six, seven years, you publish three, four times a week, you're gonna produce a very high quality voluminous content platform. And, uh, and that that's going to then become a sink on the internet that Google has begun to recognize over time is the go-to place for that very information on that niche. Now, there's a lot of other people that would be producing sort of similar content to that. But what I've come to understand is that the majority of, of businesses, they, they, they have a website and they understand the importance of, of, of having a public-facing proposition that articulates what they're all about, but they haven't been scientific about understanding Dominating the niche, hmm. and by defining your taxonomy and mapping the knowledge graph, and continuing to publish over time, answering questions and solving problems, providing information that has values to people that have got an interest in that niche, over time you have such a voluminous. Uh, uh, content proposition that A, your competition starts to fall away as you start to pull traffic away from them. They they they, they think to themselves, well we can't really compete with this. Uh, and B because you've got so much content there, 10 or 15 years down the line, you will have put this huge, 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 huge presence of content and answers and the kind of the Wikipedia of your your niche onto onto the web and Google will just say right this is the go to place there's no other no better content in uh, on the internet than what these guys have proven to put out over the years and so they should they should give you top rankings and that way you know you begin to steal the uh, the marketplace
1: okay now my own habits when it comes to the internet is if i see that i've uh, i ask the i ask google a question and i'm looking for a variety of different answers I will avoid going to the same website because I would like to find a different opinion or something like that. Do you have a variety of websites that answer the questions asked so people don't think that they are hitting the same place?
0: Well, um, as it happens, we do, but they are all... um it's all copy content syndicated over to our other websites because we, ha- we, ha- we have a number of websites, but in the immigra- Hong Kong immigration Service we have three. So I publish on one, and then that piece of content then gets published on the other two, but the other two have got a slightly different orientation. They've got a slightly different look and feel. The material's the same, mm-hmm. but the, the look and feel is different. But, but that's not important. What's ultimately important, I find, is that when you're establishing your content proposition, you, you, the first thing you do is you look to see what your com- content competitors are all about. Mm-hmm. And then you can see exactly what their content proposition is. So, if you know that you can publish content that's essentially ten times better than them and you can continue to publish content uh, on an ongoing basis, then the quality of the uh, of the uh, of the content pool that you develop should be so compelling and so remarkable hmm. that people will not want to click off because. They've been so overwhelmed by the generosity that's inherent in, in, in your websites, where you've positioned your expertise, and it's clear that you've done something that would mean that you don't really have to go anywhere else to look for this stuff. If you do go looking for for, for stuff elsewhere, which you know a lot of people do, then what will happen is that the the rather than it just comparing one piece of content and what they're saying to another piece of content, what, what what you tend to do is you tend to look at the quality of the experience that you're having. Mm. So if you've committed to a content proposition, like say we've done at the Hong Kong Visa Center, we know that when people naturally want to click off our website to go and check what else is out there, we know that the uh, what they're going to encounter is pitiful, mm. so we're going to win. So the mission the mission is to have 10 times content.
1: Okay. And um, now I know you have a, a video production studio. How would you say um, the way that people uh, make use of content has changed? Do people prefer to watch or do they still enjoy a read?
0: Um, well, people like to consume content in different ways. But, you know, bearing in mind that the cost of producing mere text content is marginally zero. Uh, Yet yeah, the cost of producing video content, believe it or not, is not that much more expensive, all things considered, but it's perceived to be technically challenging mm-hmm. and it's perceived by the people, the authors of the content that perhaps, you know, a bit, bit scared to go in front of the video or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I've, what I've come to understand is that, and it has been proven successful to us, is that. People, people want the quickest possible answers. They want to get to the salient part of, you know, what's brought them to your website in the first place. They don't want to have to be scouting around trying to figure out what the answer is. They want to be able to know basically at a glance what link to click, that's going to uh, contain the answer to the question. Mm. And if the um, if the video is, if, if the video is a, a minute or a minute and a half or two minutes long, people will consume that to the end. So you're gonna produce video content in my experience that basically answers questions and gets to the heart of the reason why people come on your website in the first place and make it really easy for them just to be able to understand what they should be clicking to get the information that they need. Um, and the beauty about video is that that gives you content um, creation possibilities that doesn't exist if you're just going to go with flat text and you know stock photographs and the like. With video, as you gain more experience with it, or you've got an, an orientation towards making videos interesting, uh, there's so many sort of things you can do to bring them alive and make it, uh, make it a, a, an enjoyable experience while you're educating the punter at the same time.
1: Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you a bit of a left of, left of field question here. When you, when you look at valuing a business, Um, You know, you would look at the books, you would have a look if there was any intellectual property. How would you value a business that has a great deal of content on the Internet as part of its IP?
0: Well, that's a great question, right? And uh, what you will do is... a variety of different valuation mechanisms because you look to see historically what sort of revenue has that content yielded, hmm. uh, what what level of competition do you have that uh, makes the barriers to entry against your content proposition um, germane to basically a, a pseudo, if not an actual monopoly position over time and that then impacts on the actual multiples that you'll get from your profitability or your revenues that have been generated through that content proposition. Those are, those are typical value mechanisms that are used, recognizing that a content platform is an annuity that just keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving and hmm. giving. So having said that, um, I'll give you an example of an actual valuation um, for a business that's similar to ours in many ways, although you know we haven't sold the company for this quantum. But uh, two years ago, the New York Times bought, uh, they bought two websites, but they were aligned with each other. Uh, And each of these websites had only 1,000 pieces of content on them. And these websites were very simple. What they did was that they uh, took the number one and number two consumer product from which magazine, Mm -hmm. they then sent that product out, they bought that product and they gave it to a reviewer for six weeks, who reviewed the product for six weeks and then wrote up the experience that they had on that product. And then they put all that content on the internet for free with Amazon links to both of those two products so that when people were searching for a review on a particular say camera, they find their way onto that website, there would be two two items on that page one is product a one is product b and then you read the entire the, the entire uh, opinions and then you make a decision which one should you buy a or b hmm. and the way you got the way that they made the money out of it yeah. was by being amazon affiliates so you've read the article you know what you want to buy you're going to buy it through amazon you click their link and then they get a commission out of it so two two websites very similar to ours based on the WordPress platform, as I understand it, identical to ours. New York Times bought those two websites for 30 million US dollars.
1: You, because of the number of hits that they had and they saw the potential of using the platform to market product?
0: Well, when you look at the, when when you look at what they were doing, right, there was obviously the revenues that they were generating from it, which Mm. was, you know, that was all good. There was a, a, a in, inherent in the value was the prospect of it being, uh, you know, potentially a monopoly site over time. Um, but in this instance, also because the New York Times bought it, um, they were obviously looking for ways to you know, get into the connection economy uh, and do something that... Um, you know, allows them to leverage what they're really good at, which is to command audiences, mm. typically for news, and add value in new and interesting ways. Mm. So in the connection economy there, the takeaway is, well, yeah, how do you value things? Well, well, you know, you normally value things uh, from the perspective of the party that's doing the buying. They've got all the reasons that they have for wanting to buy that. And, and the party X versus party Y may have different motivations for buying them and, and plans for them. And depending on what those motivations and those plans are, the valuation could be the difference between 30 million U.S. and 100 million U.S. It just depends. So this is another sort of fundamental. Um, the dynamic of the connection economy. If you're going to develop a content platform, if you're answering questions and it's helping to solve problems, you've got the genesis of creating relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And once you've created those relationships, you might be able to sell them more stuff. Uh, and uh, and selling them more stuff could be of interest, uh, as we so saw with the New York Times, for example, mm-hmm. to an acquirer that would then uh, impact on positively on the valuation too. So, so there's no doubt about it that you know. Um, making a commitment to uh, produce content and map the knowledge graph, produce 10 times content, sell services or other things on the back end is going to end up with a huge pool of content that will dominate the vernacular in that particular niche mm. uh, and, uh, and over the over the horizon um, there could be somebody coming along with a big fat check wanting to take it off you, thank you very much.
1: One, one of the things that I've found very irritating, um, especially on blogs is where they cheap, in my opinion, where they cheap. In the brand that they have by allowing others to advertise on mm. their platforms. Uh, you don't do any other any other advertising on yours which way would you say is a better way to go
0: uh, yeah yeah people are not interested in advertising I, okay you got to understand that today that i think 80 percent of all new online advertising spend goes to google or facebook mm. so there are very very few platforms uh on the web today that can generally and genuinely command, um, uh, you know, decent advertising rates because of that particular, you know, uh, content that you've got. I, I, I've I've never believed that our content platform should be a vehicle basically to sell advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, our content platform has always been designed to attract people who have questions that need answering. Them problems that need solving and we want to use our content proposition in a in a purple cow way to uh, create relationships and disaggregate or aggregate value and then ultimately sell services Mm. so strategically in the connection economy i think advertisement advertising is just pollution ultimately Mm. why would you why would you want to dilute you know the quality of your message uh, by allowing some third party, possibly unrelated to what you're all about, um, to sort of get in the way. I mean, if you're having a business meeting with somebody in a in a conference room, um, and you just happen to bring in uh, someone that you know, um, observing the proceedings, sitting right next to you, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't let him every 10 minutes just chirp up and say, oh, by the way, did you know that you know you can get this from me? Okay, I'll let you get back to. Um, I'll let you get back to Stephen now. I mean, mm. you don't have that. That those interruptions in in the real world don't happen. So, yep. so um, for me, I've always eschewed advertising and ne- ne- never thought that it was ever worthwhile. Even our even our video content, we um, in the main, we don't have any uh, any advertisements that run against the content. We just want to educate people and uh, help them uh, help them achieve their goals and objectives, which brought them to our websites in the first place.
1: And would you say that dominating the um, internet with your content is um, a surefire way of getting uh, to a monopoly?
0: Well, that's proven to be the case for us, and I've got an entire new, you know, line of uh, uh, of material called intelligent content marketing that's that's to, designed to sort of propagate that. So uh, it's my opinion uh, that if you do it right and you do it before everybody else, and you understand disruptive innovation. Uh, there's no reason whatsoever why you know, after you've published over X amount of time and you've created new relationships and Google have given you all the credit for being the go-to place on the web to get the best information uh, on that particular material, uh, that you can't uh, g- get a monopoly over time. Mm.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Stephen. I hope that you have an absolutely fantastic weekend and uh, you're good to catch up again next Friday. You bet you, mate. I won't sleep between now and then. You know how excited I am about these Friday afternoon talks. Have a good one. We'll chat soon. Digital
0: Bacon FM. Now that you know another ingredient from the recipe to a monopoly, stay tuned for the next episode when we'll discuss how much can be accomplished with just 1,000 true fans.